0: In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds' gummy clusters? They're fruity tangy, they're gummy, and they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity, sweet gummy and tangy, crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast, fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The 5th of October 1962 was a big bang moment for modern British culture. On that day 60 years ago, the Beatles' first single, Love Me Do, was released. And the first Bond film, Dr No, also debuted in British cinemas. But what can the meteoric rise of Bond and the Beatles tell us about Britain in the early 60s? And what impact did the extraordinary success of these pop culture giants have on the nation's global image? These are some of the questions that John Higgs explores in his new book, Love and Let Die. And he spoke to Spencer Mizen about the Beatles and the Bond phenomena.
2: Right, so 60 years ago this October, the 5th of October to be precise, two pretty extraordinary events in Britain's cultural history occurred. The Beatles' first single, Love Me Do, was released, and the first bomb film, Doctor No, made its debut in British cinemas. Now, John Higgs has written a book about this extraordinary coincidence, and he joins us today to chat about these two cultural phenomena and how they changed the course of modern British history. Hi there, John. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Spencer. Good to talk to you. So, John, can you begin by taking us back to the autumn of 1962. I mean, some of our listeners will no doubt be able to remember this. What sort of country was Britain 60 years ago?
3: It was a country that was really without a story to define it. It had come out of the austerity years and the post-war years, but probably more importantly, things like the the Suez crisis had had happened. And that is largely seen as as the event that sort of made it clear to everyone, even the most imperialist, even the most sort of, you know, uh, reactionary, that... Our days as a world ruling empire were over. You know the story that we'd told ourselves: Britannia rules the waves; the sun never sets on the British Empire. That was over, and we and we and we we couldn't deny it anymore. We could no longer deny it. So that kind of left the uh, the issue of well, who were we then? How would we understand ourselves? How would we define ourselves? So we were ready. We were sort of ready for something new and for something modern to to sort of come along. Uh, at this point.
2: Now, in my intro, there I described the fact that Love Me Do and Doctor No appeared on the same day as an extraordinary coincidence. But was it a coincidence? I mean, what what was it about 1962 that, that produced these two cultural phenomena? Not just on the same in the same month, but on the same day.
3: Yeah, I mean, it is. It is just one of those lovely, weird coincidences that it was, you know, the same windy Friday afternoon in October that these two uh, giants, these cultural giants, that would come to define how our country was seen around the world, these huge global successes, uh, appeared. You know, most countries would would kill to have, you know, uh, a global success like any of those. To get two on the same afternoon is just is just is just crazy. But they don't. The fact that it is a coincidence sort of fits because neither of them really make any sense. They're both a lot weirder than we give them any credit for. You know, the idea that you could make a a, a film series that would uh, then go on to spawn, you know, 25 sequels over a period of 60 years and every film would be a success and every film would make money. It's madness. No one can do that. You know, plenty have tried, But no one believes that that's a plausible thing. And in in the same way, the idea that a band could do what the Beatles have done, you know, is just absurd. So normal rules don't really apply around these things. It's looking at Bond in comparison to other films or Beatles in comparison to other bands doesn't really get you anywhere. It's kind of useful just to sort of look at them as these... Monsters, really, these monsters in our sort of cultural ecosystem, and that have their own rules, and and that, uh, and you know, def- define us as much as we define them at the same time.
2: Okay, so let's turn to um, let's turn to "Love Me Do," which is a simple catchy song written by Paul McCartney. I think it was in 1958. Yeah, I think he was 16. Yeah, yeah which is which is remarkable. And in the book, you, you you write that despite its merits, on the day of his release. Love Me Do was largely ignored by the London music press. I think you say that the enemy and Melody Maker didn't even bother to review it. So given that, how, how did this single go about sowing the seeds of what would become Beatlemania? Uh,
3: it, was, it was a first in, in, in music, really, in that uh, a record was released to a band that had a pre-existing fan base, In Liverpool, in Greater Merseyside, in the Northwest, in where they'd sort of been touring. Um, that hadn't really happened before. Bands were sort of found and it was the, the gatekeepers on, on radio or television that sort of gave the kids what they should have. This was, this was, this was something different. It sort of happened despite the, the London record industry rather than because of them. Um, there was just so much uh, clamor for it particularly in Liverpool, and it got up to number 17 in the charts and they couldn't, really, couldn't really deny it. A lot of producers and, and, and DJs and things would scent it and they just thought, the Beatles, ooh, I don't, I don't like that name. That's a bit horrible, Beatles, ooh, I'm not sure about that. I oh, they're from Liverpool. And they, but the, it wasn't pushed on people. It was that people loved it and they sort of demanded it and they sort of needed and requested that their DJs uh, you know, play these records.
2: So on, on the same day, you've got um, James Bond making his first appearance on the big screen. And as you said, he in doing so, he launched the single most successful movie character ever. Now... Well, much of Britain won't have heard of the Beatles before "Love Me Do." That probably wasn't so much the case with Bond, was it? Because his creator Ian Fleming had already written a series of novels on the famous spy. Yes. But can, can you tell us a little bit about Fle- Fleming himself? Because you you describe him as a, a privileged but damaged soul. I mean, what type of character mm. was he trying to create in in the in in James Bond? And how did the currency created for the novels differ from what appeared on the screen.
3: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. The, 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 the moment he finally sat down to start write, to start to write the novels, the long-threatened novels he'd been promising, he'd had this house built in Jamaica, this house golden where he said he'd go out the winter and he'd write novels. But years and years passed, and he did nothing. It was, it was when he was about to get married, and he talked openly about his, the fear of the dreaded matrimony, You know, his, his, his wife, Anne, she was the love of his life. she was pregnant. It should have been a wonderful sort of experience. But he just was not um, mature, basically. He's not an emotionally sort of mature man. The thought of um, marriage horrified him slightly. And he sort of managed to creates an alternative fantasy the, the character of James Bond uh, has all the opinions and the views and the attitudes of Ian Fleming he's just healthier you know his health you know he can smoke as much as he like he can drink as much as he like he can sleep with any women that he likes he always succeeds whatever happens he always succeeds uh, and he's also brave uh, you know uh, Fleming had been through the war but he'd He'd been the uh, the assistant to the director of naval intelligence. And he had this sense that he was a chocolate salt sailor, chocolate sailor. He wasn't a real member of the, the Royal Navy. He, he was never in any danger. You know, he was the guy behind the desk who sent people into danger, uh, where his avatar, his alternative version, would be, again, a commander in the Royal Navy, but he would be the brave one. He would be the person that, that Fleming wanted to be. So he kind of poured his entire self into a character that almost immediately came to life in the minds of readers in a way that's rare. You know, many novelists spend their entire careers trying to create a character that, like James Bond, sort of exists beyond their books, sort of exists beyond them. And it's the... It's, it's, the, it's the mixture of this positive and the positive and the negative aspects of masculinity that seem intertwined, personally, that makes it such a rich and, and fascinating and troubling, in some ways, character. So that was all poured in. And the books... When you read them after, if you're familiar with the films, they can be a little bit of a shock because there's um, a coldness and a cruelty to the interiority of the James Bond character that is often missing in, in the films. And a lot of the attitudes in those books obviously do make you wince in the year 2022. There's no getting around it. That's that's just, just the, way, the way it is. But so, yeah, so it's this huge sort of escapist fantasy for a man who was struggling with the idea that he was going to be... Uh, a husband and a father, and uh, and responsible for someone other than himself, which he, he had real difficulty with.
2: So, I mean, I guess that's kind of the interesting thing about the fifth of October, 1962, sixty two, isn't it? That you've you've got these two hugely significant cultural phenomena emerging on the same day. But in, I guess, and and you've obviously you mentioned this in your, book, they they kind of project. Very, in some ways, very different images of Britain in the early nineteen sixties, don't they? I, I thought that was that was a really interesting angle. I wonder if you can elaborate on that a little bit for us, please.
3: Yeah, absolutely. This is what really drew me to it. They are opposites. On, I mean, if you if you ask people what the Beatles are about, they'll say, "Oh, it's love." You know, it's all you need is love. Love me do. The summer of love. Um, Paul McCartney's very um, open that they did it all in the name of love. And that's exactly what it's for. And the relationship between those four men, how they became something more than themselves uh, is, which is so fascinating, which makes the Beatles story so fascinating. And it is certainly in the early part of the stories, it is one of just um, love and becoming part of something larger. James Bond has a license to kill. He, he is death. You know, it's, it's a view to a kill. It's die another day. It's no time to die. Um, uh, he 's uh, these, these notions of love and death, to Freudian psychologists anyway, are pretty much uh, opposing drives. They're the strongest, uh, they, they call them Eros and Thanatos. These are the two drives that sort of uh, motivate our behavior, but they're kind of like opposite forces. So the notion of Bond and the Beatles as love and death, as, as opposing forces, sort of trying to define who we are in this country who we who the story of people of the british people going forward after the after is after the, uh, the the imperial years um it kind of becomes this i don't know this, the most public sort of playing out of psychic laundry in in, in history really <laughs> it's it's the it's the. Um, it's the struggle between the two and because my previous book was about William Blake um, I, I was kind of steeped in sort of Blakeian thoughts and he's very big on contraries uh, he used the word in contraries you know we, we, you can't have long without short or hot without cold you need them both so he writes about the marriage of heaven and hell because you can't have heaven without hell it's, it's he it's the dynamic between these that's the interesting thing rather than just studying one of them or, or the other it's the dynamic between that reveals a lot more so just by putting Beatles and James Bond next to each other and telling their stories as they sort of go forward. It just does reveal an awful lot of, of, about us, really, and, and about the tensions between the ideas they're putting forth and the, and the visions of how we should be and, 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 and what it means, particularly about it to be male, to be, you know, about masculinity sort of going, going forward. Um, it was just too rich a uh, subject to, to turn down, I think. <laughs>
2: So these are both very British phenomena. So why did the rest of the world lap it up so eagerly, do you think? Yeah, that's
3: a great question. Uh, Because there's no reason they they sort of should have, except that they were great. You know, except that they were genuinely, genuinely unique and and, and special. Uh, I don't think you can put it down to more than... And it was rare. Certainly the idea that a band would break America... You know that that didn't happen. That never sort of happened. But you know, you look at uh, how quickly and and how thoroughly you know they appeared on the Ed Sullivan show, and then they had the top five singles in the Billboard top ones were all Beatles, and uh, and a lot of people in America see them as sort of helping America recover from the shock of the JFK assassination. Sudden, suddenly they needed something positive, something joyful, and something. It's this blast of energy. It is odd looking back, but at the same time, I kind of think it would be strange if other countries didn't like them because they are, as I said, they are, they are great. Yeah.
2: I mean, you mentioned uh, um, yeah, Sullivan's show and Beastful Mania. Uh, you've got, like, the screaming fans at uh, Shea Stadium. You know, timeless images of the 60s. Now, personally, I know less about Bond's impact on America than I do the Beatles. I mean, how voraciously did American cinema goers fall or lap up the Bond films? And and um, and how did Bond change American perceptions of Britain?
3: Great questions. Uh, the the interesting thing with when Bond was a success, um, suddenly there was this outpouring of spy films uh, and, and Bond clones and, you know, Mission Impossible, The Man from U.N.C.L.E. And I think in 1965, there I think there were 30 Hollywood you know, spy films. And this is the point where Hollywood sort of gave up or not gave up, but but Westerns sort of fell from favour. So the history of Hollywood up until that point, the big staple was the Western from the very early days up through the 1950s. That was the American myth- mythology, basically. That, that was the stories how they, there was good guys and there was bad guys and there was shootouts and... Uh, uh, and it, but it was backwards looking. It was it was looking back. Spy films were kind of the same, but forward looking. They were always kind of set in a slightly more futuristic version of the now, where technology was just a little bit more exciting and a little bit more more interesting and uh, and things like that. And they still had the same good guys and bad guys and you know um, fights and uh, the, all the things that they like. So it's kind of interesting that uh, this. The success of Bond uh, marked the point where America started looking forward. And then when you go through the 60s until finally the moon landings and, and things like that, there's that sort of that golden period that we now refer to as the American century because of that, that particularly that post-war period when uh, the American story is just, Forward and positive, and you know, exciting and thrilling, and all all that sort of stuff. You can see Bond as a as a as a. It's, there's a lot more going on than Bond, obviously, but it's as as a key sort of marker. Um, the the way they took to him and sort of adapt and 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 just fell for spy stories and, and action adventures and stuff like that it does seem to fit quite well.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: It's an indication of the extent to which Bond was the ultimate sort of male fantasy, that even those four
1: people on top of the world were drawn to it. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Now,
2: speaking of falling for Bond, you write in a book that casting Sean Connery in 1962 was as close to perfection as casting gets. Now, how did the choice of Connery contribute to the franchise's success? I mean, one of the reasons I'm asking this is that, you know, he was Connery was Scottish, he was working class. I think you write that he left school at 13 to work at a dairy. I mean, he... He hardly fitted Ian Fleming's mould of, of of like this Auditonian Englishman, did he? So you know, why was why was his casting so spectacularly successful?
3: Well, it was exactly that. It's because he wasn't Ian Fleming's James Bond. It was it was a real change. It, 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 Fleming had spent many years trying to get the films off the ground in some way, shape, or other, and. His vision of the character, uh, which was, as you say, very uh, establishment, very old school, very, very English, was not as appealing outside his social circles as he thought. You know, it wasn't what people, it certainly wasn't what the Americans would want um, for uh, Cubby Broccoli and and Harry Saltzman to find an actor that had the confidence of the character, that had the sort of sense that men would really like to be. That person, you know, it would be pretty great <laughs> being Sean Connery to look like that and act like that and so have that, that. That's that, that they sort of moved um, Bond from the character in Ian Fleming's books to the sort of idealised or perfect masculine fantasy of how we want to be, who we'd like to be, and that was that wasn't um, posh. And and that wasn't um, establishment, but he had the ability to sort of move through all worlds. He he knew what to do in those worlds, but he didn't have to stay there. He could go through, you know, he could be in Kingston in Jamaica and and still behave correctly. You know, he 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 had the um, he had the talent, and that's why Bond, I think, became such a global uh, success because. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of things like the Desmond Decker song, um, 007 Shantytown, um, which was really from the slums of Jamaica. Um, and it was a Jamaica that was the opposite of how Fleming viewed Jamaica, which was the last uh, you know, outpost of the British Empire. Uh, but they'd they they, they they'd very quickly got independence and become a, a, their own country and things like that. Yet they still loved Bond. The, the, the rude boys and rude girls in, in, in the Shantytown still loved Bond because... He knew that you know life could be better. You know he knew that no matter how bad things were, there's no excuse for you know maybe not dressing well. You know to have to have that confidence and that cheek, and to not sort of be bowed by the man. You know to sort of stand up tall and, and be be that sort. Of, that really appealed around the world to you know a, a generation of of young men go grow, growing up in all different circumstances. He did become sort of the ideal male fantasy in a way that um you know no one really fantasizes about being like james bond you know or any of the other spies but 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 james bond is there to be that sort of fantasy uh, and he did that by changing from the character that Fleming did. And he did that throughout the following decades by changing again and changing again and sort of mapping um, how men were changing over that time. And if you look at the whole arc, sure, you know, it's, you're gonna f- it's easy to find fault ideologically about, you know, misogyny and you know, imperialism and all that sort of things. But the overall change, the overall arc of the character has to be seen as a, as a positive thing um it's it's it, James for all of the producers keep insisting oh we we always go back to the Fleming character, you know we as long as we 're anchored in the fleming character it 's all true James Bond and stuff like that. They say that a lot, but if you if you look at the the books and you look at the films you know i don 't don 't think Fleming could have handled Roger Moore to be perfectly honest I, th- I think <laughs> that that change even back then would have been too much for him
2: okay so let 's fast forward a couple of years and you 've got um Sean Connery uttering the the famous line in, in Goldfinger, in which he says, my dear girl, there are some things that just aren't done, such as drinking Dom Perignon 53 above the above the temperature of f- 38 degrees Fahrenheit. That's as bad as listening to the Beatles without earmuffs. <laughs> now, was that purely a throwaway gag or was there a little snobbery behind that comment?
3: I mean, it was very much the establishment view at the time. It was certainly how the the circles that Ian Fleming moved in viewed the Beatles. Um, it was, and, and one of the, one of the things that set me off writing this book was I found a thing written by Hanish, uh, Hanish Greshi uh, when he talks about being in school and how his music teacher uh, told them the Beatles didn't write their own songs. They were taught this at school, that it was a trick. It must be, you know, the the well-spoken, you know, George Martin or Brian Epstein were doing it. And it was all a hoax because for the music teacher, uh, and Hanif is really insightful about this. Uh, he know, he, I think he writes that he knew that to admit that the, the Beatles were doing it would take too much away from his entire worldview. What he meant by this was that um, the music teacher believed that, you know, people who went to the right schools, came from the right families, had the right backgrounds, were better. They were superior to people who weren't. And the idea that some, you know, some oiks from Liverpool... Could be self-evidently so much more talented than the people who had gone had the right backgrounds and were from the right families. Really blew a fuse in their minds. It really sort of sabotaged their sort of their ent- entire worldview. Because if it was the case that you know, you know, talent, creativity, imagination, hard work—if these attributes were spread equally throughout the population and not just concentrated, you know, in the in the uh, the children of the of the wealthy then their entire way of understanding the world just collapses. It just became... It was too much. And so when the Beatles were given MBEs, um, that was a really strong political act by, by Harold Wilson. It sent quite a message. And the the fury that it, it raised in a lot of people seems odd now. It seems odd. Of course you give the Beatles, the MBEs—they've so successfully We have no problem with that. At the time, at the time uh, it was a real challenge to this hierarchical sort of establishment worldview, um, and that's why Harold Wilson did it. You know, and it has been very effective. It has—it has altered well the, the following sixty years of British culture to a really profound and important degree. I think.
2: So would you argue that the Beatles' success, and also I guess you could say Connery's success as well, is is change expectations about what working class people can achieve in the realms of music and film.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it used to be the case that people would pretend to be upper class, right? They would, they would adopt the RP accents to, to sort of get on. Now it's the case that people who do come from, you know, a, a very privileged background, an aristocratic background, a wealthy background, they pretend not to. They pretend, they pretend to be working. They pretend to have worked for all this, you know. Um, and there's hilarious figures, um, you know, about particularly people in, in the entertainment industry, actors and, and, uh, and musicians, who now, the way the, the economy is, it's so much harder for working-class bands to sort of keep going and, you know, find a place to live in in London for cheap. That doesn't happen anymore. You know, you kind of need a bit of family money behind you to sort of establish yourself in in these fields anymore, much to the detriment of British culture, I think. Um, Yeah, that that has been a real change. But um, deep down, we sort of recognise that being handed something makes you lesser. You know, the the, the people who have earned it, we we respect more and we value more. And that is a real change. And that does, you can change, you know, follow that back down to that, that decision to give the Beatles MBEs and things like that.
2: So we kind of know what Ian Fleming thought of the Beatles. I mean, what did the Beatles make of his creation, Bond? I mean, did... Did the James Bond franchise have any kind of impact, influence on their creative output?
3: Yeah, it, it, it did. And it's kind of interesting because if you look at the Beatles, particularly, say, 1965 Beatles, when they, you know, they started off as this, what Paul would call, a good little rock and roll band, and they sort of achieved everything they could possibly achieve. They They... They uh, became more successful than they could ever possibly have dreamt. And it must have kind of looked like they were, they were on top of the world and maybe they'll sustain it for a year or so and then it would all fall away. There wasn't really the sense of the, you know, the, the great artistic leap they were going to make in the coming years at that sort of point. Um, they they were on top of the world, but st- they still needed, you know, a dream, a fantasy, what, what to be, you know. So it's very telling for their second book, bu- their second film, they basically went, "Oh, let's make a Bond film. Let's let's put ourselves in a Bond film uh, and help." Uh, although it's a spoof, it's so um, it's so obviously meant to be a, a sort of a Bond film. It even has you know scenes shot in the Bahamas for tax reasons rather than plot reasons, and you know scenes in the Alps and the skiing and all the things we'd sort of sort of associate. They had the. A, a, version of the Bond theme in it and, and all those sort of things. Uh, and, it, you know, it didn't kind of work as well as their previous film. Um, becoming James Bond wasn't enough, you know, and it that did sort of push them into finding something new and finding something better and becoming the later Beatles that we that we already know. But, I mean, George Harrison, he loved his fast cars. He was an absolute womaniser. You know, he wore 007 T-shirts. Ringo married Barbara Back, who was the Bond girl in The Spy Who Loved Me. Paul McCartney got himself an Aston Martin and uh, for a holiday he drove around France in a disguise with a moustache and his hair sort of swept back, you know, in this Aston Martin, the most Bond-like thing you could possibly be, you know. So it's an indication of the extent to which Bond was the ultimate sort of male fantasy, that even those four people on top of the world were drawn to it.
2: OK, I wonder if I could um, enter the realms of the, of, of the counterfactual for a couple of minutes... Just wanted to ask you your opinion on, on how different the nineteen sixties would have been if the fifth of, of October, nineteen sixty two, hadn't happened. If you know the Beatles hadn't recorded "Love Me Do" and had become a foul covered band or something, or Fleming's novels hadn't been converted to film, do you think the swing in sixties would have still occurred? Well, a lot. It,
3: the, the, it was the country was very ready for change. Um, and what the de- just things like demographics, sort of an economic boon, all these, all these, everything was ready. The arrival of you know seven inch singles, the, the changes in radio, and things like that. You could see it needed something. But I mean, there's, there's an argument that if it hadn't been the Beatles, it would be someone else, like a similar band, like maybe Jerry and the Pacemakers would have been. It doesn't really run true. There, there was some. You know, there was a unique quality. There was something very, very special about them. They were um, so much more than sort of any other band. Uh, and it was kind of—it's taken us this long to really get our heads around it because, because they were so domestic. You know, they, they're part of every family. They're just very familiar. Uh, they're not threatening. Um, they, they just feel part of us. And, you know, it used to be that we'd talk about the Beatles and the Stones as if they were sort of like equals of, of a similar sort of worth. That doesn't happen anymore. And It'd be more likely to hear people talk about the Beatles and Shakespeare now. So as we get further and further away and we get more and more perspective, we sort of realise what an enormous thing it was. It's kind of, In the way that, you know, Shakespeare, the cultural footprint of Shakespeare, is so much bigger than 16th century theatre, even though that's illogical the same way the Beatles have become so much larger than, you know, 60s pop music and, 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 th- and things like that. So I, 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 there would have been a lot of change in the 1960s. The way that the Beatles became the most uh, famous and best-loved, you know, entertainers in the world and then sucked up everything that interested them in the, the counterculture and the world and the avant-garde and things like that and just sprayed it back at the mainstream... I don't think would have happened without the Beatles. So the the you know the, uh, things like the interest in you know, Eastern religions and psychedelic drugs and all these things. It's hard to see how they would have become quite so mainstream without the Beatles and quite so sort of well known. And so the notion that you know there's probably a yoga studio in every high street now and and you know we that things like that. I don't think would have been the same. It would it would have been different. I do find it hard to imagine what we'd be like now if it hadn't been for both Bond and the Beatles. I can't, it's all. Oh, it's just impossible to sort of, to sort of fathom. It's, it's, it was such a, a big um, rewriting of how we as a country saw ourselves. Uh, it, there's a, it, there's a sort of confidence in, to the country that comes from Bond or it was a, that Bond gave us permission to sort of revel in as well. Um, way, you know, way ahead of our tiny little size and our, our actual sort of impact and things like that. Yeah, it's it's no one can ever really answer that. It's it, it, it's like you can't unring a bell. It's too much changed, I think. Sure,
2: yeah. Just even in the past year, we've had the release of No Time to Die and Peter Jackson's extraordinary film Get Back. Why does a bomb franchise and and the and why do the Beatles remain so enormously popular? Six decades after they first exploded onto the public consciousness, there are
3: many people who would like an answer to that question. There are many people who would like to sort of bottle what it is. There's, um, there's, there's always a period um, after something's out and something's successful. It's usually a period where it's sort of rejected as being sort of old hat or old fashioned or, or out of out of taste or something like that. I, w- I was thinking back to ABBA in the in the 1980s. Uh, the, the way we think of ABBA now is so different to how they were viewed in the 1980s. They was kind of a bit of a joke, a bit of an embarrassment, and stuff like that. It wasn't until, you know, the release of ABBA Gold, that greatest hits in 92, and the Erasure did this abba P and stuff like that. Pe- people started to look at them again and looked at their work and went, my God, these are great songs. and these These are sort of songs for the ages. It's kind of like things have to be sort of cast into the ocean of culture where they can sink for a bit. But if, you know, things that were of their time but only speak to their time they all just sort of fade away but the thing that things that have something timeless about them they, they then rise back to the to the surface and for both Bond and the um, and the Beatles it was really the, the Britpop era the, the mid 90s where they both sort of came rushing back into uh, uh, relevance uh, with Golden Eye and with the Beatles anthology project and, and things like that and where they've sort of remained ever ever since um yeah it does indicate that there is something timeless about them although the future of bond is a really interesting question you know uh bond as i say is death and death cannot die so i just think he's it's it's going to go on and on but he's he is seen by people born in this century um in a very negative light uh, that you, you don't. If you look at like places like Comic Con, no one no one's dressing up as James Bond. There's no James Bond cosplay. Um, he kind of represents everything that they're against on some levels. This sort of, you know, the, the misogynistic, imperialistic, sort of white bloke, sort of going around killing. You know, it would be very interesting to see if they make the changes necessary to interest a new audience, which is possible, but it would mean like uh, hiring someone like Harry Styles. With his sort of style and his sort of flamboyance and stuff like that, as but which would be a real challenge to the older Bond audience. Um, so that that will be because the next the next Bond will be the first Millennial Bond, and um, the Millennials, you know, they've grown up with dating apps and hook-up apps and things like that, and the, and the notion that you know James Bond is 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 a bit of a womanizer and that was slightly classy in in, uh, in Fleming's day. That's just so past, past telling now. You know, he, he's going to be... For Bond now, will be very, very different. And for a lot of people, it will be difficult. And it's the extent to which the producers are prepared to give the existing older audience something that they recognise or the extent to which they sort of realise that in the long run they're going to need a younger audience and they'll have to change with it, in the way that Doctor Who has, has, has become very good at sort of changing for the younger audience. Whether Bond can do that, that will be very interesting to tell.
0: That was John Higgs. Love and Let Die is published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. John has appeared on the History Extra podcast before to discuss a very different cultural phenomenon, the otherworldly creations and extraordinary life of the eccentric poet and painter William Blake. Just search for William Blake in your podcast feeds to bring that up. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.